Here we are, Macadoon Cigar Lounge, heart of Copenhagen. And with a really special person here, but first off, Doctor, what's your favorite smoke? Uh, this is being recorded. Uh, my, my favorite smoke is uh, Monte Cristo number two. Classic, classic choice, but wow. So yesterday I was going to the Shisha Lounge at a Skype meeting, and then I was gonna actually record after, but the Wi-Fi wasn't working. And I was like, that's never happened before at the Shisha Lounge. So I'm like, okay, where should I go to next? And then I thought, hey, let's go to the Cigar Lounge. Head to the Cigar Lounge. I'm just sitting in here. All of a sudden, uh, an interesting fellow comes in, and I'm working. I decided to make kind of a, just a comment to him. I said, hey, nice tennis shoes with the sport coat. He laughed it off, but uh, then we started talking. And, and it's just crazy how this universe works because, for one, I was going to talk on the podcast about networking. And my favorite spot is the Cigar Lounge. Two... Your birthday is the same as my father's. You're really into medicine, um, simple living, happiness, and I mean, you're world renowned. And third, this morning when I was prepping for this interview, my dad got an email to go attend uh, a class by your brother, Deepak, you know, Chopra, Chopra, and world famous guy. And, and so all these things are putting together. And when we talked yesterday, doctor, you brought it up, but man, you're world-renowned author, speaker, Harvard. You got every letter in the alphabet before your name on Wikipedia. And I'm so excited to, to learn from you and, and get your knowledge out. And Sun G. Chopra, spelled it right. Dr. Happy, how are you doing, man? <laughs> Nick, I'm, I'm on top of the world. I'm very, very thrilled to meet you. It was not a chance meeting yesterday when we met. I think these things are meant to be. Sometimes my brother and I refer to it as synchro destiny, synchronicity and destiny combined. So synchro destiny. So I'm delighted to be here and share with you and the audience some reflections on a topic I'm very passionate about, and the topic of happiness, what makes us truly happy. That's awesome. And uh, today I was happiness. That's what we're going to get into. Yeah. And I was uh, watching a TED Talk this morning with you as at BU, TED mm -hmm. BU, and the, the five simple things to, to be happy. Um, one was friends. Two was there was gratitude, serve others. What was, the, what was the one I'm missing? Ability to forgive. Ability to forgive. So let's let's just jump into it right now. Because <laughs> I, I want to be happy and yeah, I want yeah, my yeah. listeners to be happy too. Well, so. I, I think you're a happy guy to begin with. We can all, we're all on a journey, right? Life is a journey, not a destination. And in order for us to be happy, I've come to the conclusion that the happiest people on this planet have four traits in common. The first is they have a cadre of good friends. Your friends are your chosen family. Robert Louis Stevenson once said, a friend is a gift you give to yourself. Khalil Gibran said, friendship is a sweet responsibility, never an opportunity. James Rohn, best-selling author. Yeah. So James Rohn, best-selling author, once said, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So choose your friends carefully. Celebrate everything small or big with your friends. There's an amazing study called the Harvard Grant Study, the Harvard Study on Adult Development. And uh, it's been the subject of a book by George Valiant, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. The name of the book he wrote is called Triumphs of Experience. 
and more recently, Robert Waldinger, also a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Med School, has given a brilliant TED talk on this study. So this study started almost 80 years ago, and it's still ongoing. There are very few studies that get funded for that long, and there's follow-up for that long. So they took about 622-year-olds, 300 went to Harvard, the other 300 went to poor parts of Boston. They grew up in Dorchester and Roxbury. Followed them every single year, detailed questionnaires, then home visits, then blood tests, EKG, cholesterol, C-reactive protein, functional MRI. Now a cohort of their children are being followed in the study. As of last year, I believe, 19 were still alive. They were 91 years of age. What happened to that group? Some became lawyers, some became doctors, some became skid row, alcoholic, derelict, some died of suicide, some became famous CEOs. One became our president, John F. Kennedy, was wow. in that study. And what is the major conclusion of the study, Nick? The major conclusion is that loneliness is toxic. Totally. And that your satisfaction with relationship with friends, now your family can be friends too, can be your best friends, at age 50, is a better predictor of health, happiness, and longevity three decades later at age 80. Better than what? Better than your blood pressure, your cardiogram, your EEG, brainwave study. It's, it's amazing. So we must, the social fabric of connectedness with friends is one of the most powerful things we can do to live longer, to be happier, to be more creative, to network, do all those wonderful things. So that's the first trait. The second trait is the ability. Well, let me let me get into sure. questions here. Um, yeah. And it's crazy because you always hear those old sayings and like the old ancient wisdom. Uh, laughing is the best medicine. Yes. Um, you know, hug your your loved ones. You get that oxytocin. Yeah. And, and isn't it crazy how? Because you're you're a Harvard guy. I mean, you're really smart with the medical Western field. But all of a sudden, like this old ancient wisdom is coming back to play where. You know, it's not just the medicine, like it's normal everyday things with the people you love that, that make you so healthy and successful. I mean, how are we finally getting back to that point? All that ancient wisdom is coming to the forefront. Yeah, I don't think we lost that wisdom. I think it got submerged by us thinking that luxury items will make us happy. You know, I get a brand new car. Oh, my God. If I get a sports model, it'll be, I'll be even happier if I move into a brand new house or a big mansion, I'll be happy. If I win $20 million on a scratch lottery ticket, I'll be happy. In reality, what happens, those people, let's say they buy a new Ferrari or move into a huge mansion in Beverly Hills, they're happy for about three months. Then it's a house, it's yeah. a car, and you get used to it. This phenomenon has a name for it. It's called hedonic adaptation. You know, you've heard of hedonism. Didn't we just talk about this yesterday with the Copenhagen yeah. Denmark people? They have free yeah, exactly. healthcare, free yeah. education, but they still get sad about some stuff and unhappy exactly. pills. Yeah. So hedonic adaptation. Now, if you win twenty million dollars from a scratch ticket, it all the studies have shown that a year later that person is less happy than they were before they won the twenty million dollars. Mm -hmm. Their friends and relatives come out of the woodwork. Say, "How did you get so lucky? Pay uh, yeah. my mortgage." Yeah. The, there are one category of people who are happy amongst those. And those are two things. One, they've given away a certain amount to a meaningful charity. 5%, 10%. You still got a lot of millions left with you, right? Yeah. Number two, they've partaken in meaningful experiences. They've traveled. 
I know a guy. It's unreal. He's a brilliant, beautiful man. And he used to work at Costco in Waltham, Massachusetts. I live nearby. And he was the guy who would check your shopping cart as you left and look in there and sign and off you go to the... Super happy too back then. Right. Happy guy. And with another colleague, he bought an $8 ticket. So they each paid $4 and they won $20 million. This guy is now partaking of meaningful experiences. He's learning a different language. He got a passport. He came to London to watch the Patriots play. You know, he's having a great time and he's charitable. He's donating to charity. He's one of the happiest guys. So friends, the second trait is ability to forgive. One more time. One sure. More. How do people, <laughs> you're about to drink the mic. <laughs> so, okay. We got a, a different setup than uh, the doc is used to. But uh, how do people find that, that good group of friends? Because people are always dealing with toxicity and, and all that. Where do they go to meet those good people? You'll meet them by chance, but in reality, it is not chance. You were meant to meet. And if they have the same core values as you do, then they are the best friends. If they are so-called friends, but they like to gamble, they like to drink too much alcohol, they only want to have a good time, good times, they're into money and luxury items, they're not your true friends. You gotta have friends who will root for you, who will enlarge your horizons. I made a conscious effort when I first came to this country in 1972. And I told my wife, who's a physician as well, I said, we need to make non-physician friends. Otherwise, all the time we'll be talking about medicine yeah. when we go out for dinner. You know, So I have electrician friends, I have plumbers who are friends, I have CEOs who are friends, I have philanthropists who are friends. And I pinch myself, how did I get so lucky? But I did make a concerted effort. And you made you brought up a great point. I've heard this thing in a TED Talk, and um, I think uh, your brother Deepak talks about this, the whole free will thing, and how the universe you're meant to be destiny and all that. I've been doing a lot of research on kind of subconscious, uh, your conscious being, and and how that's like ten percent, and we're controlled by our unconsciousness. Is that what's creating the destiny and creating your relationships and creating your future? I agree. I think that's what it is. You put, you put something out there into the universe, a request, an affirmation, and nature will come and support you. You have to believe in it though. Affirmations, we talked briefly about affirmations yesterday, are extremely powerful, but they're most powerful if you say them at night as you put your head to the pillow. The brain actually figures it out while you're asleep. There's neuroscience to back this up. So one of the affirmations a friend of mine and I have taught at a happiness workshop, is very simple. I expand in abundance, success, happiness, and love every day. I love that. And inspire others to do the same. The inspire others to do the same is not out of arrogance, it's my duty. Voltaire, the French philosopher said, every man is guilty of all the good he did not do. If you have a, a talent or a skill and you can share it, you can mentor, you can nurture somebody. You gotta do it, man. You know, take it to your grave with the song still unplayed. No, you gotta do it. I've read that quote so many times about like um, people being afraid to put themselves out there, but like you gotta look at it as not being selfish or being, getting, trying to get attention, trying to share your gift. Yeah, absolutely. And I've read that quote a ton. And um, a big uh, point I was, I was trying to get to too, that free will part, 
So in our conscious being, we're not free will. We're ran by our subconscious unconscious, but it's possible for us to uh, push our subconscious to the routes we want to go, right? Oh, yes. Is that, so we do have some sort of free will. Yeah, but you know the best way to do that and the most effortless way to do that? Through the regular practice of meditation. 100%. And right. you're a transcendental meditation. I do transcendental meditation. There are many kinds of meditation. They all work. This one I've been doing with my wife. My brother and I learned it. We learned it 38 years ago. I do it twice a day, once in the morning. And I'm pretty good in the evening. If I'm very, very busy, I'll still do five minutes, ten minutes before a meeting, before a talk. And my whole day opens up. And I'm much more creative, much more relaxed. More and aware. It's, it's much more aware. Absolutely. Yeah, I know your wife um, ended up becoming a teacher that so she could travel yeah. with you, right? Yeah. That's really neat. Because you guys have yeah. been together for 50 years? 50 years next March 8th. And you told me if I, I ever... I got married at 20. Yeah. <laughs> you told me if I ever find the, the love to read uh, the five languages of love? The five love languages. Love language. By Gary Chapman. Amazing. Okay. Makes perfect sense. Okay, awesome. Hey, number two. Number two is ability to forgive. If you hold bitterness or rancor in your heart, you cannot, cannot be happy, truly happy. Gandhi once said, forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. The weak can never forgive. The Buddha said, resentment is like holding a hot coal with the intent of hurtling it at somebody who offended you. That person's moved on. Meanwhile, you're burning your hand. But to me, the most inspirational example of forgiveness is Nelson Mandela, oh, yeah. who spent 27 years in prison. It's hard to fathom 27 days, weeks, months, 27 years. When he's released, Mr. Mandela, do you have a resentment against your white captors? He said, I have no bitterness. I have no resentment. Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. It will kill you. He said, as I walked out towards the gate to my freedom, I looked back at my cell and I said to myself, if I still harbor resentment, I'll still be in prison. Yeah. Prison of the mind, right? And then he can, yeah. So I often say this in talks to up to six, 7,000 people. I say, anyone in the audience, if you're still holding a grudge, I plead to you, get rid of it. And sometimes people will come and they'll cry and they'll say, oh my God, I've been harboring a grudge against my brother. For what? So we don't even know. We were friends and suddenly something went wrong. I said, what are you waiting for? One of you to be on your deathbed? Pick up the phone, call him and say, I love you. I don't know what happened. Let's meet for coffee. I've actually had an associate who did this. And it turned out it was a total misunderstanding between their wives. They got together, their friendship. And then his brother, as he, as he left to go back to his city at a layover, had a heart attack. Fortunately, survived. Jeez. But, you know, he could have died. So we must learn to forgive. We see road rage in America. Crazy. Somebody cut, cuts you off. Next thing you want to play, blow your horn and catch up. And Shoot him. Hey, you got a gun. Shoot him, <laughs> right? Wayne Dyer, motivational speaker, passed away a few years ago. Amazing guy. I got to meet him. Wrote a series of best-selling books. And he once said, when you see somebody cut you off like that, pretend. He says, pretend they're going to see a dying parent to the hospital. Say yeah. a prayer. Get over it. Switch your mindset. Perception. Yeah. Not easy to do. But can be done. Right? I'm going to piggyback up that point. I've been uh, a vengeful person, especially in the sporting world. And like when you're in the moment of when you get hurt, you're like, oh, I want to put it back in their face so bad. And then sometimes you use this motivation. I don't think it's healthy because once you get it, get them back, 
you realize like that's it that's all it was yeah. and like most of the time they don't care anymore yeah. they, yeah. they totally forgot about it point. and I, I love that a lot so for sure so good group of friends for, to forgive. forgive the third albert schweitzer was a physician nobel laureate laureate theologian humanitarian started a hospital in Gabon, Africa with his wife who was a nurse. In 1952, he got the Nobel Peace Prize. And talk about humility. At the ceremony, he said, now sir, I have to go earn it. Sir, now I have to go earn it. But he once said, one of my favorite quotes, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I'm certain of, the ones amongst you who will be truly happy are those who have sought and found how to serve, right? So I distilled it into another F, friends, forgiveness, for others. for others. One of the best ways for us to be happy is to make others happy. There's this whole concept of servant leadership, right? Leaders are there to serve. So three Fs, friends, forgiveness for others. The fourth one begins with G, and it's gratitude. Oh, let's, let's talk about that servant, though. That's yeah. great, because you look at the greatest leaders of all time. You got Alexander the Great charging with his men, you got Caesar, that the 13th Legion would do anything for him. They marched on Rome. Uh, Napoleon, they were all serving their men. They would they would die for him because they're the greatest. They're not sitting in the castle. Like, yeah, you guys go to war for me. They were yeah. on the battlefield sure. working with them. Um, what are some ways in the everyday person's life to, to serve others around them? So I, I wrote a book on leadership. It's called Leadership by Example, the 10 Key Principles of All Great Leaders. And it turns out that followers look for a couple of things in leaders. And smart leaders do it instinctively. So they look for four things. The first is stability. They want a leader who is stable. Yeah. Number two is empathy, kindness, compassion. Number three is trust. If I say, Nick, I trust you, it's like the highest compliment I've given to you, right? If I praise you, oh, there are lots of people who are praiseworthy. They have a skill, they have a talent, there are a gazillion people out there, but trust. And the fourth one is hope. Giving okay. inspiration. Followers look for hope. So I have, again, acronym SET, S-E-T-H. Right? That's the name, S-E-T-H. Stability, empathy, trust, and hope. Napoleon, you mentioned Napoleon. Napoleon was asked to define a leader. He said a leader is a dealer in hope. Yeah. yeah. What a simple definition. Now, the other way so-called leaders lead is through fear-mongering. Yeah. Okay, and that's what the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Mussolinis and people like that do. Well, hey, let's not... It works for a while, but in the long run, it doesn't. And another way to look at leaders and leadership is that you can be an amazing leader without ever having a title, CEO, president, chancellor, right? You can be leading. And you can have a title, of a, a leadership title. That doesn't bestow upon you qualities of leadership. Well, listen to this, though, too, because um, Caesar uh, did the whole Gauls are a menace. You know, yeah. he exterminated the Gauls, but he's looked at as a great leader. I, I assume Napoleon was, oh, the British are all after us, that too. But then we also look at the titans of the industry of the world, and they always say like, a lot of them are sociopaths or to get to that level somehow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that So how do some of those leaders totally give, don't do any of the stuff you just said but become the freaks because the fear monger? Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and they became... They got leadership titles, you know, emperor, chancellor, CEO. But that doesn't mean they were great leaders. They don't have the qualities that I think of as leaders. So my leadership mnemonic is spells out leadership. 
great leaders listen. They have empathy, E. They have an attitude that's upbeat and courageous. They dare to dream big. They're effective. They're resilient. They have a sense of purpose. They have humility. They have integrity. And they back other people's parachute. You want to hear a story about backing other people's parachute? I do, but I want to make sure you... There you go. Stupid thing. <laughs> you're, you're just speaking so That's much okay. good stuff. Packing a parachute. So there's a guy by the name of Captain Charlie Plum. And he's a motivational speaker and, and brilliant. He gets a standing ovation. And his story is that one time, many years ago, he's sitting at a diner having breakfast with his wife. And there's a guy two rows away and he keeps glaring at him. After a while, he walks over. He says, you Captain Charlie Plum? He says, sure am, sir. He says, you flew F-4 Phantom jets off the Kitty Hawk during the Vietnam War. Captain Charlie Plum says, that's true. He says, you were shot. You ejected. You were captured. You were a prisoner of war for six years, and you were tortured. Captain Plum looks up. He says, that's all true. Who are you? And the guy says, sir, I packed your parachute. So Captain Plum gets up. Oh, my God. I've been meaning to look for you. You know, you saved my life. Yeah. Tell me something. Do you keep track of everyone's parachute you pack? He says, no, sir. It's enough gratification for me to know that I have served. Captain Charlie Plum was 24 years of age. He had married his high school sweetheart at the Annapolis Naval Academy. Off he goes to Vietnam. He's done 75 successful sorties. It's his last one. He's coming home to his bride. He's shot. He's captured. He's tortured. He's depressed in an eight-foot infested cell. This is not my war. This is my president's war. I was going home to my bride. One day he thinks in his dark cell he hears a cricket chirping. So he goes to investigate. It's not a cricket chirping. It's a piece of wire scratching the concrete floor through a hole in the wall. So he pulls on it. There's a tug. He lets go. Reappears two hours later with a piece of toilet paper on it. I'm a fellow prisoner of war. Memorize this code and swallow the toilet paper. He said... Don't feel sorry for yourself. It's a fatal disease. It's called victimitis. Oh, yeah. You and I will survive. There were 180 U.S. elite fighter jet pilots in this prisoner camp. One day through a crack in a cell, he looks, there's a new prisoner. Sitting on a stool, silver hair being cropped. Senator McCain was in that camp. Oh, yeah. But there was one other guy. He was a midshipman. All right, not a pilot. And he slipped off his aircraft carrier, was drowning. They captured him, put him in the same camp. And these guys are making fun of him. Every now and then they meet in the latrine or in the mess, they're allowed to eat together. What altitude were you flying at? And what's, you know, speed? Two years later, the Vietnamese say to this midshipman, you're the one guy who didn't drop bombs on us. You can leave him. You can go home. And he's very naive. He says, I'm part of the team. If you release me, you have to release everyone. So they scoff at him. And the guy who connected with Captain Charlie Plum says to this midshipman, who's now 23 years of age. Listen, I'm in charge. I'm the senior most guy in this camp. Take my marching orders. Go home. And here's the most amazing part of the story. It's McCain. No. Oh. In those two years, McCain was offered yeah, to be released. But he didn't get released. But he said, no, I'm part of the team. But this midshipman comes back to our country on his own accord, his own money, crisscrosses north to south, east to west. In those two years, Nick, he has memorized the names of the other 180 fellow prisoners of war, the names of their first of kin, and their addresses, playing songs in his head that he made up. Oh, wow. Can you imagine? 
Um, and uh, he, 70% of the time he meets the families. Your husband is alive, your father is alive. So in my mind, he was the ultimate parachute packer. So parachute packing is a metaphor for nurturing and mentoring. You and I are here today because somebody packed our parachute. And our job as leaders is to do twofold. One, we have to pack other people's parachute. But number two, thank people who packed your parachute. Well, in my talks, I say it could be a parent, it could be a neighbor, it could be a teacher, it could be a friend, it could be a spouse. And my plea to you, don't wait for the eulogy. Yeah. Write to them now. Go thank them now. Well, thank you Very for powerful. talking to me. How about that? You're packing <laughs> my parachute right now. So, so I said to Captain Plum, what happened to that group? He said, Sanjay, one almost became our president, Senator McCain, senators, CEOs, admirals. I became a motivational speaker. I said, no, 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 I want to know what happened to that midshipman. This is a few years ago. He said, Sanjeev, he became a teacher. He's 77 years of age. To this day, he can recount the other 180 names, names of first of kin and addresses. But if you interrupt him, he has to start all over again. Wow. Isn't it amazing what the mind can do? It's unreal. Huh? Wow. Amazing. So that's the leadership mnemonic and the P is packing other people's Who's uh, the greatest leader's examples in history? In your opinion, in my opinion, uh, unquestionably Gandhi. Gandhi. And are you? What is your religious background? I'm Hindu by religion, but I believe in all the good, okay. all the good religions. So Gandhi was assassinated uh, a year before I was born in India. But I learned about Gandhi in school from my parents, grandparents, teachers, and to me, the most amazing moment, leadership moment in history was in 1930 when Gandhi conducted the salt march. So India is under British rule. Yep. Salt is plentiful in India. And yet the British have imposed this exorbitant tax on salt yeah. for poor people. So he writes to the Viceroy. He says, I consider the salt tax to be the most iniquitous, the most abhorrent, the most repugnant of all the laws you have imposed on the Indians. And since India's freedom movement should first begin for the poor, I'm going to conduct the salt march. He's going to walk 150 miles, 140 miles. Gandhi is 63, is frail. The British miscalculate. They give him permission. They think this is going to backfire. He assembles 77 followers. Gandhi at 63 is the oldest. The youngest is 60. He has Hindus, Christians, Muslims, Jains, Jews, untouchables, the lowest caste, yeah. worst caste. And they start to march. And as they march from one village to another, throngs of people join them. Some 27 days later, he arrives at a coastal village. By many accounts, he puts his hand in the ocean, lifts it, there's salt, and he declares, henceforth, we shall not pay tax to the British on salt. That image captivated the imagination of millions of people. But even women, cotton factory workers in England, parliamentarians, people in all over Europe. Over the next six months, there were 5,000 salt marches. And 100,000 Indians were arrested, jailed, beaten, some died when it launched India's freedom movement. He was able to capture, you know, he led by example. There's an amazing story of a lady who walks in with her 12-year-old son. She walks 20 miles to meet him. She says, Gandhiji, my son adores you. He worships you. He'll do anything for you. Look at him. He's gained so much weight. He's eating a lot of sugar. Would you please tell him not to eat sugar? So Gandhi looks at the boy and the mother. He says, come back in 10 days. So they go away. 10 days later, they again walk in the heat and the dust come 
to Gandhi's ashram. Gandhi looks at the boy, he says, son, don't eat sugar, it's not good for you. And the boy says, Gandhiji, from this moment onwards, I have given up sugar. And he leaves the room, the mother stays behind, says, Gandhiji, thank you for saying that to my son, but can I ask you a question? He says, sure. We were here 10 days ago. You could have said the same thing to my son then. And Gandhi whispers into her ear, at that time, I had not given up sugar. <laughs> See? Yeah, you can't, you can't tell some exactly, yeah. Brilliant. I love Absolutely that. Absolutely brilliant. Wow, that's special. I, I got to do some more research on Gandhi <laughs> for sure. Watch the movie Gandhi. Okay. You know, Ben Kingsley acted in it. He got the Oscar. Uh, yeah, it, I heard about it's, it. It's a long movie, three hours. I watched it about 10 times. Every couple of years I watch it to remain inspired. Um, one thing you said that was really cool, and we just had a podcast on it, which is crazy again, is that victim mentality. Yeah. What do you think that's really um, prevalent now with today's society, yes. and how yes. can we do something about it? And light, light that cigar. You can light that cigar. So what I say is that, you know, if you're going to complain about something, it really doesn't move the needle forward unless at the same time you become part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Don't amplify the problem. We all know what the problem is. If we talk about sexual harassment, discrimination, bullying, all of those things, we know about it. Everyone knows about it. If you're really passionate about it, start working on it. Form a little, give a talk at the Rotary Club, usually in the library of your school. Get people mobilized. Get young people mobilized. They're the future leaders. To me right now, the most one of the most amazing leaders in the world is Greta Thunberg from Sweden. 16-year-old. The climate thing? Yeah. She's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. If she gets it, she'll be the youngest ever. Malala was 17. She has spoken to all the leaders, chancellors, prime ministers, presidents, given talks at United Nations, Davos, March 15th of this year, in 125 countries, children did not go to school. They marched to create awareness about climate change. She has autism. Everything in her life is black or white. She's convinced her whole family to become vegetarian, to cut down on the carbon footprint. Again, by example, she's leading. 16 years of age. It's fantastic. Brilliant. I heard a good thing <clears throat> recently that you don't got, if you can't come up with solutions, then don't even say no problems. Yeah. Now, you can just sit in the back and let the people actually do stuff, do it, exactly. unless you come up with a solution. Yeah, be part of the solution. Don't amplify the problem. So anyway, those four things, Friends, forgiveness for others, and G is gratitude. Gratitude. If There's a wonderful anonymous quote. If you don't know the language of gratitude, you will never be on speaking terms with happiness. Okay. Okay? And it's so easy to be grateful. So Robert Emmons is considered the father of modern positive psychology written a wonderful little paperback called Thanks. What year was this? Recent. Modern? Modern. What about Great. Norman Vincent Van Peel? Yeah. Is he the grandfather? Oh, they're great. Norman Vincent Peel, uh, Vincent Peel Clement Stone, yeah. Napoleon Hill. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. I read them every few years. I reread them. But Norman, uh, this guy, Robert Emmons, so he actually did a study. He randomized half a large group to jot down three things at the end of the day. Random things they did that day. Yeah. The other half Jot down three things you're grateful for. And the ones, at the end of six weeks, the ones who express gratitude, something called the happiness quotient, 
consists of three things, set point, living conditions, and voluntary action. So set point is genetic. 50% of our happiness, this is based on study of monozygotic twins compared to non-identical twins. Sure. So 50% is genetic. Only 10% is living conditions. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Whether we live in a mansion in Beverly Hills or the slums of Perceptions Calcutta or the shanty towns of Joburg, as long as we have a roof, running water, we can be pretty happy. And 40% is voluntary action, what we do to help others. But that 50% set point, we can modulate it, even though we've inherited it. Yeah. It's in our genes. How? Exercise, behavioral cognitive therapy, meditation, mm. but most importantly, gratitude. You can increase that set point by 25% by expressing gratitude. So I encourage people to have a gratitude journal. Put your name, call it your gratitude journal. You can put quotes in there as well. And every Sunday, as you're looking forward to the next week and say, I got to do this on Monday, Tuesday, reflect on the preceding seven days and write down what you're grateful for. You just brought up uh, reflecting. And when I was watching your TED Talk, you talk about um, derma. Yeah. And finding the, the two most important days, you told me this yesterday, yeah. when you're born and then when you find out why you're why, born. Yeah. And your passion and reflecting and it comes to you. Um, can you speak about your journey, finding your yeah, yeah. your passion, but then more importantly, how others can find sure. theirs? So, so the four things we talked about, friends, forgiveness for others, and gratitude will make you happy. And you'll have many, many happy moments doing those things. But happiness, true happiness, is more than the sum total of happy moments. And in order for us to have sustained happiness, be happy pretty much most of the time, we have to find our purpose and live it. So that's what Mark Twain, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. A fellow cigar smoker? Yeah. <laughs> he said, if I, if I go to heaven and there are no cigars, I ain't going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Mark, Mark Twain uh, said that. Uh, Montaigne, the French philosopher, said, the great and glorious masterpiece of man is to live with purpose. Sir Ken Robinson has written a wonderful book on purpose, finding your element. What's your purpose? So we can arrive at our purpose in one of two ways, multiple ways. One is reflect on it. It'll come to you. Don't fight it. Okay, especially if you're with good friends. Number two, for 30 days, take three by five cards, 30 three by five cards. At the end of a day, write down one, two, three, four things you did and give it a rating. One, you were miserable. Ten, if you're lucky, you were in bliss. Eight, nine, you were very happy. At the end of a month, strike everything. One, two, three, four. Six, seven, eight, nine. Wow, that made me happy. Yeah. Your purpose is lurking in there. That is what resonates for you. That what expands your heart. Your happy purpose is there. The third way. I'm definitely going to get that down from you and send yeah, it out yeah. to our people. That's really the, cool. The third thing is somebody witnesses something horrific, but they have the fortitude, the grit, the courage, the compassion, the love to say, you know what? Oh my God, this is unacceptable. I'm going to try and make a difference here. So I know this guy. His name is Papa Jaime. He's from the country Colombia. His original name is Jaime Aramillo. He's my age, 70. 42 years ago, 
he's standing at a street corner in Bogota, and across the street there's a sewer, and these orphans live in that underground city with sewage. Mm -hmm. There's a seven-year-old beautiful girl looking at him and smiling. And as they're having this interchange, a car comes around the corner, stops in the middle of the street, window rolls down, somebody tosses a toy, yellow school bus, Fisher-Price toy, and the car recedes. This seven-year-old has never possessed a toy. She comes running up to the street, picks up the toy. She's looking at Jaime Aramelo and smiling. And as they're having this interchange, speeding truck comes around the corner. Bang. Kills her. So he says to himself, this is it. This is my calling in life. I'm going to adopt these kids. He's adopted, house-schooled, and fed 52,000 children. He said, Papa, how do you pay for it? How many staff do you have? This is crazy. Huh? I heard this is yeah. crazy. He said, I have a bakery. The only thing we make is cookies. I've convinced all the restaurants in Medellin, Bogota, to put a cookie jar next to the cash register. As people leave, they grab a cookie. In a shoebox with a slit, they drop change. I get 50% of my needs that way. I said, what about the other 50%? He said, I'm a motivational speaker. I speak all over Latin America. I plow my own radium into my foundation. I said, Papa, come on. That doesn't cut it. I know what motivational speakers get. So he smiles. He says, you're right. Every time I need money out of the blue, somebody supports me. He says, three weeks ago, I needed 41,000 US dollars. I go to three banks. They turn me down. I'm coming back to my office. There's a street woman across the street. Papa Jaime crosses the street, gives him a hug. He says, are you hungry? She says, yeah. He says, come to the office. So she's sitting in his office, drinking coffee and having cookies. He's on the phone calling three other bankers. And she can tell that he's being turned down. So mm -hmm. she looks at him and she says, Papa, how much money do you need? She says, Sanjeev, I told her I need 41,000 US dollars. She looks, she smiles, says, I give it to you. Yeah. She says, I said to myself, she's cuckoo. <laughs> street woman. But she opened her purse, she had $60,000. Son had sent her the money to get off the street. She had to sign a piece of paper, move into her. She says, I've saved some other money. I can move later. You need it. Your children need it. Take it. No questions asked. You can return it if you want. That kind of thing happens to me all the time. He next showed me the photograph, again tragic, of a young lady with third degree burns on the entire left side of her body. One of his new orphans, they told not to leave the orphanage, don't go begging. She crept outside, was begging outside a fancy restaurant. The restaurant owner called the police. It was not the police, but a death squad that showed up, Dang. put her in the gutter and torched her. He rescued her, 17 reconstructed surgeries. Then she gets educated, comes to America on a computer sciences scholarship, is back home, is married. This is seven years old story. At that time, she had a three-year-old. And Papa says to me, that three-year-old is my grandchild, plays with my biological grandchildren. <laughs> Next moment, he shows me the photograph of a young guy dressed in impeccable white with a tennis racket, junior national champion of Columbia in tennis, flanked by Pete Sampras on one side and Agassiz the other. They've grown up to become professional athletes, computer scientists, teachers, lawyers, doctors, surgeons. They've been doing it for 48 years. And many, 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 most are giving back to the community. But he found his purpose in life 42 years ago, witnessing the tragic death of that seven-year-old. Beautiful. It's amazing. And, and you know, Nick, if you meet him and look at his eyes, the bliss in his eyes. I would love He's to like meet him. One of the happiest guys. I said, come to Boston. I'll do a fundraiser for you. Um, that's crazy because I heard that the story, the TED Talk, and it's amazing hearing it in person. You're a great storyteller. 
but also the pencil one I heard, which yeah. was really neat. Yeah. But the whole part about the money, like it comes just from the universe. He found his passion. Yeah. And that's what's fascinating to me about you is, look, you got the every alphabet, you know, word before your name, Harvard, you know, you're a medical guy, but you talk about this universe stuff. And uh, there's a lot of people that I know that look at me when I have these notebooks, like you're freaking crazy with affirmations and meditation. But now I'm talking to a dude that's, one of the smartest people in the world and you're you, you're kind you're kind you believe in this stuff though. i believe in it i totally believe in it i think the modern day philosophers you know we're talking about happiness socrates was one of the first to argue before that the ancient greeks that happiness was only bestowed upon a select few who are these people nobility poets philosophers royalty that he said no 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 it can be begotten by human endeavor anyone can be happy and that happiness and virtue are inextricably linked. The ancient Greeks did not use the word happiness, they used a term called eudaimonia, which literally translated means human flourishing. When you're happy, you'll flourish. Albert Schweitzer said, success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. Okay, so those are amazing philosophers, brilliant people. I think the modern day philosophers are children. So when I give my talk on happiness and living with purpose, I encourage everyone in the audience. I say, ask your children, nieces, nephews, grandchildren. They will surprise you and stun you with what they say about happiness. So I gave a talk at Assumption College. It's a big Christian college in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I share my slides. People are taking notes. I say, no, 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 you don't have to take notes. You can use my slides. You don't even have to give me attribution. You can modify them. I call it copy left. <laughs> as opposed to copyright. So one of the deans writes to me seven days later, Dr. Chopra, I loved your talk, went over it with my husband, but I took your cue and asked my five-year-old daughter, what yeah. is happiness? My five-year-old daughter said, Mommy, happiness is when the heart feels bigger. Wow. Yeah. Huh? Three-year-old son of a surgeon at Harvard. Daddy, I'm most happy when I'm sharing my toys with my friends. You know, John Lennon, the Beatle, at age five, goes to school. Teacher gives an assignment. Write down what you want to be when you grow up. He writes happy. He gives it to the teacher. And the teacher says, John, you didn't understand the assignment. And he looks at the teacher and he says, and you don't understand life. Yeah. Five years, his mother, every night when she tucked him into bed, said, John, when you grow up, I want to be happy. I think the other great philosophers is from the wisdom of cartoonists. Charlie Schultz, Charlie Brown, you know, Snoopy. And there's a cartoon of Charlie Brown sitting with Snoopy next to him, and they're looking at the sunset, and Charlie Brown says, you only live once. And Snoopy says, wrong. You only die once. You live every day. Yeah. Look at the philosophy and the wisdom there. It's, you it's know? simple, too. Simple. Winnie the Pooh, he says to Piglet, you talk about sublime friendship and love. He says, if you live to be a hundred, I want to live to be a hundred minus one day, because I never want to live a day without you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I mentioned this, and I was interviewed by BBC. I said, Dr. Chopra, you're a professor at Harvard Medical School. You're quoting Winnie the Pooh. I said, yeah, but look at the wisdom in there. That book was written almost a <clears> hundred <throat> years ago, 90-some years ago. It's, it's fascinating. and. Wow, this is this is great. But Kanye West, you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. He talks about this 
the creativity of a kid and the freeness of a child because yeah. like they they don't understand how society works and it's like society kind of puts us in these boxes and like we're so special as a kid yeah. and we kind of and that's what you're kind of getting at isn't yeah. it the freedom of a kid the yeah. love of a kid the love, the, no it, you're always interesting you're no, interested in everything no, yeah no about curiosity curiosity they're always curious what's going on they want to explore <laughs> but it's just amazing to me because all this like knowledge it's out there and like a lot of the people that become very successful or become very influential they that's what they talk about there's like keys to success keys to happiness that yeah. are like universal that universal. aren't that complicated they're, no they're not they're absolutely not all the principles um, I have to find this book there's a guy who wrote a book about all the different religions and he says if you look at their finest core values and principles they espouse they're all common. Yeah. You know? 100%. Love your neighbor, be kind, take care of the poor, take care of Mother Earth. All simple principles. It's fascinating. There well, was a spiritual teacher from India, Swami Chinmayananda. And he was once, uh, after a talk he gave thousands of people, somebody went up to the mic and said, Swamiji, would you please define God? He said to define God would be to defile God. How can you contain God with a definition? But if you insist, let me offer you a definition. Man minus ego is equal to God. Yeah. The Mother Teresa's of the world, right? They don't do it to get the Nobel Prize. She saw the face of Christ in every leper that she took care of, made his or her wounds. So Christ. What do you... Those are saintly people. Those are there's hard. there's something about her though, and like maybe goes in the the sacrifice. Yeah. Um, because she was there's stuff coming out about her that she was a really sad person. She had moments of darkness, and moments of despair, and moments where she doubted God and goodness, but she still did so much good. Let Let me ask you this: um, the whole universe is one. We're all God. We're all in this together. We're all connected. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think we are. Absolutely. I don't think it's chance that, for example, you and I met. I think it was meant to be. You know, I checked with the concierge at the hotel I was staying and I asked uh, another shop. He said, oh, there are no, no cigars in Denmark. Really? I Googled. <laughs> I found this place and then I walked in. And you were at another place and you came here. I mean, it's meant to be. There's also a wonderful definition of heaven and hell. You know, this world-famous samurai warrior, the whole world adores him, worships him. One day he says to one of his disciples, I need to know the meaning of heaven and hell. He said, sir, if you walk two miles up that hill, there's a monastery, there's a monk. Monk, he knows everything, most learned guy. He will know the definition. So he walks up. He says, where's that monk who knows everything? <laughs> he says, sir, he's in the inner sanctum. He's meditating. You can't disturb him. He says, nonsense. I'm the world's greatest samurai warrior. Walks into the inner sanctum. He says, what fun? Get out of your stupid meditation. Teach me the meaning of heaven and hell. So the monk looks up. He says, teach you. You are a disgrace to the samurai warrior race. Your clothes stink. Your sword is rusty. Get out of my sight. Guy's incensed. Everyone worships him. This puny monk is insulting him. He takes his sword. He's about to decapitate him. And the monk looks up and he says, that's hell. 
He said, oh my God, he was willing to sacrifice his life to teach me the meaning of hell. So he puts his sword away, he sits down, he says, he smiles benevolently at the monk. The monk looks up and says, that's heaven. Wow. State of mind. Wow. What a great story. I feel like you can tell stories for... I could. <laughs> it's amazing, man. I, I have a good memory. I'm very lucky. I appreciate it. Um, let just How about a quote you kind of live by, some more life lessons? Just I just want to take in as much knowledge as I can from you. <laughs> Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Facebook and Twitter? Yeah. Oh, so you're new I, age now. We're getting on the socials. So I only put quotes, a book I'm reading, or a health tip, or something in science. Three or four things. Okay. You know. And you'll be just around the country uh, speaking and... Yeah, I can travel a lot. Do you have some more book, or books in the works? Oh, coffee. You're going to write a book on coffee? I'm going to write a book on coffee. And I'm going to write a book on kid leaders with my 14-year-old granddaughter. And that's a big thing because you copy. You're a liver like expert, yeah, yeah. and I should have met you a couple of years ago. when I was drinking a lot. Now I'm on that team sober, but that good for you. That, I'm so happy for you, Nick. Yeah, I mean, I might not last no, forever, no, but no, no, we'll no. see. No, it feels good. Yeah, it feels good. But that coffee like heals your liver and all that. Yeah. Low risk of seven cancers, Alzheimer's, Parkinsonism, and now four studies that people who drink coffee live longer. Yeah. Live longer. So at the end of my shoelace, I have a piece of plastic. It's called anglet. At the end of our chromosomes, we have something called telomere. And it prevents fraying of chromosomes and chromosomes sticking to each other. If we have short telomeres, it means we're not going to live that long. Who has shortened telomeres? Mothers of chronically severely disabled children. The stress day in, day out, day in. Unless they're meditating, exercising. Caregivers of people with Alzheimer's, not the person with Alzheimer's, dementia. They're clueless. They don't even know what's happening. Yeah. They love not taking care of them. Who has longer telomeres? People who exercise, people who meditate, people on the Mediterranean diet, and people who drink coffee. Yeah. And the coffee thing is fascinating. It's not the caffeine. Increased caffeine intake is linked to shortened telomeres. So if you keep drinking Red Bull, you're not going to live long. Increased coffee intake is linked to longer telomeres. So mechanistic explanations. It's it's a superfood. 2.25 billion cups of coffee are consumed every day. The most of a liquid, yeah, right? I account for five of them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Coca-Cola saw the writing on the wall. A few months ago, they bought Costa, chain of coffee shops in Europe, for $5.1 billion. Ooh. Too bad. You know? Made up. Diet drinks are the worst drinks. You want to have a Coke? Have a little bit of Coke. Best drink is water, coffee. Two best drinks. <clears throat> Man, so the five simple things, what's the title of the book? That's a different book on five things we can do to live longer. Five things we do live longer. on scientific evidence. Coffee, exercise, vitamin D3, nuts, and meditation. The, the Brotherhood book? Plug so in. I'll summarize how for people to remember those five. Okay. On a good sunny day, go for a brisk walk to your favorite coffee shop. Now you got the exercise, the vitamin D from the sun, and the coffee. Don't go nuts remembering this. Nuts. That's the fourth thing. Okay. <laughs> and the fifth, meditate before you go. And there's an ancient saying, you should meditate once a day 
And if you don't have time to do that, you should meditate twice a day. <laughs> then you really need <laughs> That's good. Man. Okay, then the Brotherhood book, Leadership book. And then three books that aren't yours that you highly recommend for people. Uh, I think a, a wonderful book on leadership is uh, another, you know, I wrote one, but this one is awesome. True North by Bill George. Bill George teaches leadership at Harvard Business School. I've met him. By the way, he also does TM. He's been doing it for 40 years. We found out by chance. So that's a great book. True North. What is your true north? What is the purpose? Yeah. True North? North. N-O-R-T-H. Like a compass points towards. Oh, okay. Yeah. True. True North. Okay. Another, I think my brother's, uh, out of his 90 books, one of his best books is Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. Oh, I was read right. about that. Sure. Very good. I read it every six months, I think. I get more out of it. Um, if you're in a relationship of uh, people getting married, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Carol Dweck, professor, psychologist at Stanford, has written a book called Mindset. We either have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. The ones who have a growth mindset are the ones who succeed in life, mm -hmm. based on research. It sold like 1.3 million copies. Who's endorsed it on the front cover? Bill Gates. Okay. Uh, it's one of Bill Gates' 60 best books. I've heard of it. So Mindset, very good. Thanks by Robert Evans, all about gratitude. It's a whole bunch of books. That's great. Well, I hope, I so much appreciate this. It was unreal meeting you. And Maybe we can do it again on Skype, or maybe I'll come to yeah. Boston. Yeah, we do, can a, do it. We can do it. I would love that. Yeah. But thanks a lot, and You're let's welcome. let's finish these cigars and keep talking. <laughs>